0: Hi, I'm Cece Schumacher-Round, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned Podcast. This is a very special episode for us because it's our 100th. We launched our podcast in September of 2018 on a whim as another way to connect our industry. And since then, we've just only scratched the surface of showcasing the amazing talent that defines it. It's been an honor to be able to interview and share the stories of so many incredible people who have made an impact on design and hospitality, each in their own way. I hope you have walked away as inspired as I have. So to commemorate such a huge milestone, we thought it would be fun to reflect on the last four years by highlighting a few key moments. So here with me is our executive editor, Alyssa Ponchion, and our de facto producer. So hi, Alyssa.
1: Hi, happy to be here. I gave myself the title of producer. You are the producer. (laughs) You are.
0: (laughs) You wear many hats, but you definitely are also a producer.
1: I'm happy to be here to reminisce. I can't believe it's been four years. Yeah. Do you remember when we decided to start this podcast?
0: I do. It was at a city scene roundtable in New York. And somebody – we oh, was it before that, though? And then we announced it
1: there. Uh, we were at your house for a holiday party, and you said after a few glasses of rosé, why why don't we just start a podcast?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes.
1: And we were like, okay, let's do it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then we announced it at the City Scene Roundtable and actually got our first sponsor there. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is how we come up with the best ideas. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: So our first episode was with Raul Lial. He was the former president of Virgin Hotels at the time. Um, now he's the CEO of SH Hotels and Resorts.
0: Do you remember why we chose Raul as our first guest? To be honest, he's a really good friend. And we... Th- I thought he would be a good guinea pig. Um, He was someone who wouldn't be mad if we messed up the first episode. Um, But in all seriousness, he also has such a fascinating career slash journey, and his outlook on design is so interesting. His dad migrated from Cuba to Miami, and he was a restaurant manager at a local hotel where Raul eventually worked when he was a teenager. And now he's been in the hospitality business ever since and has learned the ropes along the way, moving from you know, little man on the totem pole to, you know, top tier. So he credits a lot of his hospitality education to a general manager at the Sheraton Royal Biscayne named Mary Ellen St. John. So here's his story on her. How did you learn about design, Raul?
2: Interesting story. So um, I was the assistant general manager of a hotel, and this is like 1989, a resort hotel. And we had taken it over for Carnival Hotels and Casinos, And the general manager, interesting enough, was a lady, which back then was, you know, not common to have a lady general manager. And I was, you know, kind of a young kid, operations guy, whatever else. And we had a massive renovation in this 45-acre resort. In her past, her name was Mary Ellen St. John. In her past, she had been a classically trained interior designer. And she took me by the hand, and she said a couple of things. She said... uh, I'm going to need you to work closely with me on this. The hotel's only half open anyway, so focus on this, and I'll help you understand a lot about design, which at the time I really didn't care about. But then we went through a painstaking process for about 30 months of redesigning this old 1910 hotel or whatever it was. And I remember sitting there with her and her saying, this is why we should use this fabric versus this fabric. So it was an incredible education that I didn't realize I was getting. I owe it to her till this day that I learned so much from her on. And, you know, later in my life, I've used it quite a bit because now I'm so attuned to those details that I'm able to really, you know, participate and provide relevant commentary on the design side when I see things aren't exactly the feel they should have or the lighting's not right or whatever. It's all going to work together. So that's my story. So I I felt like I went to design school for two and a half years with this lady. At the time, I didn't appreciate it. But now I do.
1: One of our most downloaded episodes has been Brad Wilson, the president
0: of Ace Hotel Group, who is also a really good friend of the brand. Yes, I love Brad. He's so thoughtful about everything he says. For what the title of the podcast is, what I've learned, there's so much that Brad has to offer. Every time I've interviewed him, I've walked away with a new takeaway, and this episode was no different. He also mentioned that one of his biggest design pet peeves is the term
1: pop of color, which I know I've been guilty of using a few times.
0: Yes, absolutely. And now every time I see it uh, written in the pages of the magazine, I have to edit it out. But what I find most inspiring about Brad's hospitality journey is how he took Alex Calderwood's vision for Ace and carried on that legacy after Alex passed away. It's more than a job for Brad. It's a passion project for him to continue what his friends started. Yeah, we've talked about it a little bit that, you know, it's called the ace effect or, you know, called the Schrager effect. You know, it's when somebody does something so well that everyone then now wants to replicate it, which I guess, um, what do they say? Flattery is the best, uh, is the best compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I mean, what do you think? I I think what the ace in New York did, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they made people think differently about, what a lobby could be or what a hotel could be within a community that, you know. Oh, of-
3: I totally agree. As as I said, I always have been seeking for this ability to kind of make a travel experience less lonely, right? Um, and that was all, what, I mean, that was at core of Alex's vision. His first hotel, the Ace in Seattle, he built a hotel for his friends. So he never, he never thought of, the traveler as being separate from the family. For him, he was building hotels for friends, people that he related to who would relate to him. He used to say, like, if you do what you love, the rest is going to follow. Um, and in real true sense, I, th- I think that works um, because people can feel that. And Ace New York, you could feel that kind of positive energy, the kind of draw of the space, Um and certainly everybody was always focused on the the lobby and and that kind of feel that you could just hang out in that lobby. But that really was core to, I think, Alex's vision was, you know, just the idea of being able to be laid back and hang out in the lobby the same way you would hang out in your living room at home with friends. And so all of that, I think, became a movement in an industry um, but was really actually based on just really an understanding of how people live.
0: Very true. And unfortunately Alex has passed, um, passed away a couple of years ago. But um, how do you and your team continue to as you expand, right? Like as you grow as a company, how do you continue to create this what I think Ace does really well is that authentic, you know, place uh, yeah, space that you're talking about. How do you how do you continue to make sure that happens in Chicago, in LA, in New Orleans, in, you know, wherever you go next?
3: Yeah, it it's interesting. When when Alex passed, one of the first phone calls that I got with Ian Schrager called me actually to say one, he was friends with Alex as well. Um and he was obviously sad. Um but he also said to me, he said, um, you know, if I can give you one piece of advice is whatever you do, always evolve and always be changing. And he said, one, because that's what Alex stood for. Um, But two, I know when I left Morgan's, a lot of people at Morgan's kept trying to do what Ian did. And Ian says to me, but that's not what I do today. So what you have to understand is you can't keep doing what Alex did. You have to believe in what Alex did meant and was going for and evolved toward that. And I think we've used that very hard to try and keep keep Ace moving forward whereas a lot of um, a lot of brands can be ego brands, right? It's very easy to be, you know, Ian Schrager hotels and then without that, it gets very difficult. We had a huge advantage in that Alex was never that ego creative in that sense. Alex was a person who brought people together to create collaborative environments to to leverage ideas. So in many ways, Alex taught us from the beginning a method and a style that supported evolution and wasn't really dependent on him. Um, That doesn't mean we wouldn't be a million times better if he was still around. Um, But the, the... process that Alex had always, always focused on was work with great people who love what they do, understand that uh, you can always find somebody who knows something better than you do, and you can have that person leverage that. And so the concept of partnering and the concept of evolving in each hotel and project being a unique opportunity for us to find something new and find something fresh is really important to us at a core. So we remain Atelier Ace, which is really our kind of think tank collaborative, creative group. We're always rethinking what we do, rethinking what the industry does, and we're always trying to evolve and change and, and keep up with it. So I will say each of our projects, I think in turn, hopefully, still feel fresh. They don't feel like we're redoing what we did. Um, you said... Uh, it's very flattering when somebody copies you and it certainly is very flattering. And I mean, I'm always honored when people talk about like the ace effect, as you say, um, particularly when like Four Seasons says they want their lobbies to be like ace. I'm like, woohoo. <laughs> um, but I will also say that we want to learn from what we did as well, but I don't think we ever will want to do what we did. So tomorrow we do something different every time.
1: Also early on, we were really lucky to have Venus Williams come on the podcast. This was very exciting because she came into our office, and everyone was starstruck. Yep,
0: I didn't even think about it, <laughs> like <laughs> telling people that Venus Williams was coming because she, you know, has been a supporter of us. Um, obviously, she's a major tennis star, but she's also proven herself off the court as a designer, both for interiors and clothes.
1: I was really impressed by her work ethic, of course, but also her humility.
0: Yeah, and her her dad always wanted her to have something to fall back on other than tennis because he knew tennis would only last so long. And so because of that and everything he instilled in her, she takes her work very, very seriously, and she actually does everything she does just to make her parents proud. So, at, you know, you're a world, world-class tennis player, um, and that's hard enough to begin with. What made you want to start your own design firm and, you know— be so successful at it as you have been?
4: Yeah, definitely. I thought I had to impress my parents. And it wasn't until maybe this year that I realized, oh, they were probably already impressed because I, like, (laughs) you know, have avoided um, any major pitfalls. But also, they probably are proud of the tennis. Um, They haven't actually said quite so, but I think that they are. I never never thought about it. But I always thought, okay, I have to get education to make them proud. And I have to do something outside of the court so they'll really think a lot of me. So it was my parents who pushed me.
0: Awesome. And what did you want to create when you were starting the firm? Did you have any big lofty goals or, you know, what did you want to do to kind of set yourself apart from what else is out there?
4: Yeah, I wanted to do great design, but also I wanted to win. I love winning. I'm addicted to winning in whichever thing I try. And, you know, sometimes you lose too, but as long as you learn and don't make the same mistakes twice, you know, and I think a part of it is uh, I love the business development side, too, is just talking to people, getting to know clients as much as I love the design, too. Those are those are both wins.
1: Do you remember episode 36 with David Rockwell? I do.
0: <laughs> this was our last in-person recording before COVID. Yep. And we went to his office in New York. It was such a strange time. No one knew what was going to happen. We were joking about how we were going to have to clean off the mics
1: afterwards, um, which now I would just do anyway. Yes, exactly. I'd like rub everyone down in Purell. (laughs)
0: Um, and I've had a chance to talk with David so many times And I've learned something new each time with him He has such a curious mind I love hearing how he thinks I've told this story before But I remember going to town downtown after after it opened And David was there Just watching how people moved in, the, in that space Because they designed it It stuck with me that he's much more than a designer He's a people watcher, a director, a choreographer All the above
1: Yeah, theater is like a huge influence on his life He's won a lot of Tony Awards for his set designs. Yeah.
0: And it's so interesting to hear him talk about the dialogue between theater and hospitality. They're more alike than you think. Let's go back to the whole idea of um, the intersection of theater and hospitality. How do you use you know, all the work that you've done on Broadway, you know, everything you learned growing up as a kid, and how do you infuse that in hospitality? How do you let them speak to each other? What's the process like there?
5: Well, I think the, the biggest difference between theater and hospitality is the toolkits are very different. So in theater, you're dealing with movement and choreography. You know for a fact it's not built to stand the test of time. And you're in real time collaborating with a lot of other people, choreographers, lighting designers. In, in restaurants, really from the beginning, from Sushi's then on, I believed in crafting a backstory or a narrative that helped make every decision not arbitrary. Um, so the original Nobu grew out of us, uh, us extracting in conversations with Nobu and with um, Drew and with De Niro a point of view about um, how Nobu wanted his Japanese food to be Perceived, and the aha moment. Much like in a play or in a musical, you don't want the set doing the same thing the actors are doing. There's an interesting saying: "Don't put a hat on a hat." So if the scene is funny, you don't necessarily want the backdrop to be funny. The Mm -hmm. the environment is really the changeable space. So with Nobu, when we found the way in that he was from the countryside, he wasn't from the city. Um, and his influences were both South American, um, uh, both taste and visual influences from Peru. Marrying that with the mastery of sushi became a way to create, uh, I think, the first three-star restaurant experience that didn't have a tablecloth. So it was a new way to deal with luxury. Right. And that's that's been a big influence on our firm is thinking about the changing expectations that people have about luxury. The the other overlaps are um, front doors to restaurants, to me, are the proscenium curtains of restaurants. They're how you're introduced to those rules. And no one is comfortable walking to a restaurant for 250 people if you're the first 10 people. So we just did Oceans on Park Avenue 19th Street. And the choreography of the entrance into that Entry Barrel Vault is as choreographed as a Broadway show so that the first 10 people don't enter on access to the big space. And so there are those kinds of overlaps too.
1: Okay. So we're going to have to do a pandemic interlude here because it was a strange time. Yes. Um, so when the pandemic hit, we had to pivot our setup. At the time, we were doing all our interviews in person, lugging our equipment all over New York and various cities, um, but we had to rethink that a little bit.
0: Yeah, what we all thought would be a two-week break, and then we'd be back to normal, but obviously that wasn't the case. So we got on Zoom, Amazoned a microphone to my house, and started recording, asking people across the globe how they're experiencing and surviving this global crisis. Despite the uncertainty, there was a sense of community. It kept us connected and opened up so many more opportunities for interviews since we didn't have to be in person, something that we probably should have thought of before <laughs> then. But hey, you learned something new, um, no, especially we during COVID. To,
1: we wanted to travel on the subway with like five mics <laughs> yes, and that, a Zoom recorder. Because that made a lot of sense.
0: <laughs> um, by the time May hit, I think we all realized we were in this for the long haul. Um, Sixth Census CEO Neil Jacobs was also on lockdown in Singapore when we chatted with him in June of 2020. And you could sense how big the challenges were for hoteliers. And he shared a lot. Thanks for calling in from Singapore.
6: That's all right.
0: How are you and your team trying to deal with this uh, new reality amid uh, COVID nineteen?
6: The teams, well, you know, it's been it's been a challenge. We we closed, uh, I think, close to sixteen hotels over uh, over a three three and a half week period in in fifteen different countries. So dealing with all the Stakeholders and all the all the challenges, be it with owners and uh, the bankers, and lenders, and, and obviously all our all our employees, isn't isn't simple. And uh, each country has its own labor laws and it, it, its own peculiarities. So for for our team, our, our corporate team, the majority of whom are are in Bangkok, it's it's been a really really intense time. Um for sure, in the last the last few weeks, hotel guys don't sit around generally talk about love, right no. <laughs> so uh, it's the kind of thing that we 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 actually take we actually take quite seriously because it doesn't have to mean romantic love, and it really it really um ties into our mission. Our stated mission that has been for years as company, which is all about reconnection, mm-hmm. reconnection. You know, yourself, others, world around you, and you know, it, it's a word that in the past three or four months people are using a lot. Um, but that has also has always been part of part of our DNA. You know, we don't actually always talk about hotels when we when we talk about what they what the brand stands for. So that connectivity piece from, you know, a granular level, you know, loved ones, friends, family, but, but also taking it kind of across a, a wider spectrum, which then brings the concept of love into, into what we mean by connection and And you know how we treat people, how we behave and and what what kind of drives people to get up in the morning and 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 go about their lives so we we think there are concepts there that we can bring into uh, our our wellness thinking, if you like, and wellness modalities that really will take things beyond some of, the, some of the cool stuff we've already been doing, but that, that will we'll take us one step further into some really cool, unusual um, offerings. So long, long answer to a short question. I'm sorry, but that's, <laughs> no, that's the it. kind of stuff we're, we're focusing on right now.
0: So continuing on this COVID trend in September of 2020, we also talked to chef Daniel Blued. He was dealing with a fledgling restaurant industry and that worry about the future was palpable in our conversation. How are you, how are you surviving this new crazy reality that we're all dealing with?
7: Well, uh, it has been a, a long journey of uh, worry. Of course, it has been a long journey of, uh, of uh, trying to find a balance uh, between life and work, and and certainly um, you know uh, trying to dream of better days, but we have to be very patient. We have to be very cautious, and uh, the biggest worry of all is, of course, uh, the business. But what is the business most important thing is the staff. Yeah. And and I think that was certainly something who had uh, consumed us a lot in uh, at the beginning by trying to find solutions to support our teams. And so we created foundation. We uh, reopened some kitchens. And uh, today, about three months after... Uh, tw- maybe almost three months we have been doing meals in new york producing meals for uh, different uh, charity but mostly city Mill on wheels and also we did a lot of meals for world central kitchen uh, for many weeks when they were taking care of the nurses and the first responder here in new york during the high of covid and um and then after we opened the kitchen uptown at Danielle, and also provided meals for hospital uh, in uh, on the upper side of New York. And then um, uh, from there, we started to take action on trying to bring a little bit of business or do something. And we st- we started DBK. And Daniel Bully Kitchen was uh, about, um you know providing curbside pickup and delivery and grab and go and not grab and go but curbside pickup and delivery uh with a with a menu which was certainly more casual than restaurant danielle but at least uh, a combination of our bistro menus and our more uh fine menu and it has been Good and then since then we open a terrace at Danielle and then we have opened Barbulu and we have opened a bakery, but um, I've never worked so hard. I never worked so hard, and you know I get up at I get up in the morning and the first worry we have is to, uh, you know, start communicating to many of our it's it's staff, its suppliers, its customers, is and 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 we. Um, and we try to find solution one by one and uh of course, there has been a lot of um there have been a lot of coalition of restaurateur and chef and uh so like many people, I have spent my last five months on zoom yep. all day long
8: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs>
7: and uh, that's uh that's not it's not a good thing it's um I think you know there's nothing better than uh, you know being at work being with the team work with the team and 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 feel that sense of power together which I think is very difficult to sense in with Zoom
0: Right well uh well I'm glad that you are staying afloat and pivoting
7: <laughs> We love what we do we yeah. love to think about food we one thing we're not going to lose in this is our talent, our passion, our commitment, uh, uh, dedication to hospitality and to cooking and to teaching and mentoring. And I think we just need to put it all back together.
1: It's interesting to listen to those pandemic episodes now. You could tell people were broken and just trying to figure out how to survive. We all were. But everyone was so committed to their staff and the industry they love. Just reinforced a lot of the things we already knew.
0: Yeah, it was pretty inspiring actually to to do those interviews during that time because it, like I said earlier, it brought together the sense of community and you know perseverance um, that this hosp- this industry, hospitality, has really shown throughout the last couple of years. I hate to use a COVID buzzword, but should we pivot? Yes, we should pivot now that we're entering a post-pandemic world <laughs> and getting back together. Um so let's pivot for sure. Okay, I'm pivoting to one of our
1: favorite interviews
0: and our listeners too. This is has
1: been our most downloaded since it aired in June 2021. It's with Paula Shear. She's a partner at multidisciplinary design firm Pentagram. Um,
0: And she was on our list for a long time. Yes, she was. We talked to a lot of industry people, newcomers, veterans, but some of our most dynamic conversations are with those who are adjacent to or a little outside hospitality. I find Paula's story to be incredibly inspiring. She's an artist and graphic designer who was a children's book author, designed album covers for John Prine, and she was the first female partner at Pentagram. She truly has defied expectations. Um, what was it about Pentagram that you liked that made you want to go work for them or with them?
9: Well, um, I liked that the designers there seemed to earn a living <laughs> while I was actually having a distinct difficulty at it. No, I, I really, um, I have to tell you about that year and a half on my own. It was yeah. was um, debilitating. When I started the business, I was in my early th- 30s. Like when I met, when Terry and I were working at Time, I was about, I don't know, 31. And by the time we started Coppell and Share, which was the name of the business, I think I was 33 or 34. I don't really remember quite the age range. And I was still getting youth-oriented work. And the problem was that as the decade wore on in the 80s, I started competing with people younger and younger than me who were entering the field. And um, I found that particularly after... Terry left and I was a woman alone in business that I was getting the same work I had already gotten. And the kind of work I was getting was not going up higher in fees. It was more or less the same. And I had the distinct feeling that if I didn't make a definite change, it would go down. So when the offer came to join this group of men, and they they were a big group of men, I thought I'd make more money. Also, their work was good. It was very high level. Pentagram had an amazing international reputation. And um, uh, Michael Beirut, who was already a friend of mine, were, was asked to join at the same the same time. He joined six months earlier than me because I had to close down my business. But we um, that also made it easier knowing I was going to have a friend walking in the door. Right.
0: And as you mentioned, you were the only partner that was a woman. Um, How did that influence you as a leader? And you know, did you face a lot of challenges in that role? Yep. (laughs) (laughs)
9: Um, You have to realize that the partnership in the in the New York office wasn't so terrible. It was five guys. The London guys were fifteen. Wow. So, I mean, I guess there were ten. There were fifteen men all together when I went to my first first partners dinner. So I remember. Go the the first partners meeting I went to was in in Rome and um, we were at this we were staying at the Roman Academy American Academy in Rome and uh, I remember we all went out to dinner and there were you know fifteen men and me and they they sort of had a a, a big table that was sort of in a circle and I had my little seat and. Um, one of the help, one of the one of the either the hostess or somebody who was guiding us to the seat said to um, Alan Fletcher and two other men who she was talking to. She said, "Why is there only one woman here?" And Alan Fletcher said, "Oh, she was the only one who was talented enough to join our group." And she looked at me very snidely and said, "Oh, you must be very very talented." You know, and I remember just feeling like, oh, God, it's bad anyway I look at it. You know, like this thing is like completely wrong.
1: You've been in this industry for a while. Too long. (laughs) Is there a guest you've talked to
0: who made you rethink design or the industry in general? Yes. The person that comes to mind is Kia Weatherspoon. She's a force for good in this industry, and we can all learn from her about building design equity. Do you remember how she first came on your radar? She emailed me back in 2014, introducing her firm to us. Um, She wanted to be invited to NextGen, one of our um, amazing conferences for the next generation of leaders. And then full circle moment this year, she was one of our Wave of the Future honorees who we honored at NextGen. And when we talked to her this year, she revealed that there were two times in her life when she realized that design wasn't equitable and it motivated her to pursue interior design to change that conversation. But what? So what then drew you to go to school for design? Oh, okay.
10: Um, Until we have a little, have a little bit of time. Yeah, brief. So I will say this: um, it wasn't even necessarily how I grew up as a child, but I think there were two big moments of my life where I realized space matters. Okay. Um, I think the first one. Happened when my brother was incarcerated. Okay. Um, my brother was incarcerated when I was in high school and he would end up being incarcerated for 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, and I would start my family on this journey of going in and out of prison facilities. Um, and what I do remember vividly is the first prison I ever walked into. Um, and that immediate reaction was, I don't want to be here. Right. No one should be here. Right. Um Sands all the things of why the people were there it was just a visceral feeling like this isn't the way people should traverse through spaces right um and year over year i would think about it from the perspective of other people me as a sibling a parent a grandparent a child the guards and then finally like the men right um and i just felt like it was something about the space um and i would just sit with that i would sit with it um So that was moment one. Yep. Um, Then I went to college um, to study dance and I didn't get financial aid. And I said, I'm going to join the military. So I joined the military. I joined the United States Air Force in 2001 and I got to my first duty station in July. um, And then September 11th happened and I was on my first of four deployments to the Middle East and it was at Al Udeed Air Base in Doha, Qatar. Um, and it was at the height of the war, so it was a bare base, and it was in Tent City. Yep. And I was in this tent with about 14 other women, and I needed some privacy and I didn't have it, so I took some sheets, I hung it from the top of the tent, and I made three sheet walls around my cot. And that was the first space I ever created, and I bawled like a baby for 15 minutes. Um, and it was something about how that space, it healed me, it brought me comfort, it brought me solace. Right. Um, and I would do that on three more deployments. And when I got in the military, I was like, I wanna do this thing where I create spaces for people. And that's how I got into interior design. That's amazing. Um, it is the most roundba- roundabout way. Um, but a very profound way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in, in, looking back now, and I think about the body of work that I've done it's all about making sure everyone has access to elevated spaces. Right. Um, but it's also kind of like, man, why didn't I take notice to my environment as a kid, right? Why didn't the low-income community that I grew up in, why wasn't an elevated space that would create this visceral reaction to me? Right. Um, I'm not saying that, you know, I, I came to design from, like, a place of trauma, right? Right. Um, so I don't know, but that's, that's how I got here. That's how I got to interior design.
1: This also reminds me of a conversation we had with Damon Lawrence from Homage Hospitality way back in episode 20. He shined a light on a lot of the industry
0: shortcomings too. Yep, he's trying to change the industry, creating a new brand for the underrepresented Black traveler. So can you talk a little bit, um, Damon, about what was Homage? What did you want to do? What was the, you know, initial... Beginnings
11: of it um, and yeah, ideas. Yeah, uh, I sat in my computer, just doing as much research. I would do it at the front desk uh, a lot of times on those slow, those slow nights, and tried to find out if there was someone else that looked like me in the space that was branding and creating boutique properties, and I couldn't find it. And every time I would Google, I was always taken to these, you know, stories of uh, you know people from the '50s and even earlier than that. That created these hotels that only Black people could t- could go into, and that was the the closest thing that I could find as inspiration. And so I was like, "Man, there's there has to be a way for me to pay homage to that," and that's where the, that's where the name came from.
0: And those hotels weren't
11: anything glamorous. No, I mean, you think about the the Green Book, right? If, if you think about that and think about those spaces, and um, they some of them were glamorous for us, right? That were. Jazz greats that would do things in the speakeasies in the basements, and you know, from all across the country—DC, Harlem, Harlem Renaissance era. Um, so they had great names culturally within uh, the Black community, but didn't reverberate outside of that.
0: We've also been lucky enough to talk to some of the most revered chefs and restaurateurs in the industry: Danielle Belude, Andrew Carmelini, Marcus Samuelson, Kevin Bain, and one of my favorite interviews: Will Godera formerly of Eleven Madison Park and Nomad.
1: That's right. He invited us to his beautiful home in Chelsea, and he was so candid and so forthcoming. It was a wonderful experience.
0: He was, and that table that we sat at was just beautiful. Um, Taking what he learned from working for Danny Meyer, he really redefined what fine dining hospitality means today. For those that haven't dined at Eleven Madison Park, can you talk a little bit about how you kind of changed it and what you guys did differently or Mm -hmm. how you approach service?
12: Yeah, I mean, the thing that I tell the team all the time is we need to take what we do seriously, but we shouldn't um, take ourselves that seriously. Um, I remember one of the first things, and there were people that were working out of the Messen Park who had been hired prior to me in advance of the transition who had much more fine dining experience than me. Um, they were appalled because I went over to a table and I put my hands on the table and leaned in to talk to the guest, which is a no-no in old-school fine dining service. You never touch the table. That's not your property. It's the guest's property. Um, And one of them, in as respectful a way as he could to his boss, said to me, like, what are you doing? I said, I don't care if that's a rule. My role is to try to establish some level of genuine connection with the people I'm serving. And by breaking that barrier, it puts me more on their level and gives us the opportunity to see one another and connect with one another. And that kind of thing just kept on going. Um, We have a team of Dreamweavers, which the name came because one of my favorite songs in high school was Dreamweaver by Gary Wright. Um, If you haven't heard it, it's on Spotify. (laughs) Go check it out as soon as you finish listening to this podcast. Um, And they are people that are there to help us create Improvised moments for the people that we're serving. Um, An example is, and it started, you know, on a very very simple level. Um, I've told this story plenty of times, but the first one was that we were serving a group of people, and they had been to all sorts of restaurants in New York. and they were on their way to the airport after their lunch at 11 Madison. And I overheard them saying something to the effect of, we've been to Momofuku, and we've been to Danielle, and per se, the only thing we missed was a hot dog from the street. So we went out and we bought a hot dog, and we cut it up, and we placed it perfectly on the plate with a canal of mustard and, uh, you know, whatever. And we served it to him as a mid course. And the look of surprise, the look of hilarity, like they started laughing. Um, They felt seen. And we gave them something, not because we were desperate to serve a hot dog, but because that's what we knew they wanted to receive. And that feeling of looking at their facial expressions when that happened, it became an addiction.
1: After 100 episodes, more than 100 guests, um, is there someone on your bucket lists that we haven't talked to yet
0: the hospitality industry is a close-knit family and there are a couple names that consistently pop up during our interviews one is Barry Sternlich I would love to pick his brain I honestly would love to do a montage of everyone who has ever mentioned him he's like touched everyone's career and lives yes for sure off the top of my head Barry's been integral to the careers of Brad Wilson Andrew Zobler, Aaron Richter, Kane Sarhan, Amar Lavani, and Kemper Hires, to name just a few. In fact, Kemper of A Bears Resorts really gets into the heart of what makes Barry a genius in his podcast. Okay. And then you said your life changed when Barry called you. So how did he call you? How did he find you? What tell us that story? And we're talking about Barry Stern-like for those that you know, <laughs> that don't know.
8: Um yeah, I suppose there are other berries in the world, but he's my <laughs> Barry. Um, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I was at my desk in the Clara story at the Starrett Lehigh building, which is a beautiful space and the phone rang, and it was Barry. And he said, I've heard about you, you know, well, I'll tell you, I, I could back up by, by saying that one of Barry's biggest rules was he never hired anyone from the hospitality business, um, especially in design. One of his kind of mantras was, the way you're going to reinvent hospitality is to bring people in from other disciplines that are going to look at it in a new way. And he was, I'm still that way because of him. It's one of the things he's taught me. And to this day, I hire that way. I hire designers that way. I build teams that way. Um, The more I can get outside influence, the better. You know, I'll tell you why Barry called me. He called me because he had this belief that Um, the way to evolve and and sort of excite the hotel business is never hire anyone from the hotel business. Anyway, so totally hooked from the minute I got there. And um, of course, working for Barry at Starwood in those days was all about reinventing the industry. You know, that's what he wanted to do. And so, Barry, I can tell you, his compass point, I mean, everybody talks about Barry as being sort of spreadsheets and bedsheets, you know, that he's got this right-left brain that's amazing. But his biggest compass point when it comes to hotels is design. And so if you work in design for Barry, you're in a very revered position for him. And and truthfully, it's how he sees hotel. You talk about brand with him, and within two minutes, he's migrated from what the concept is of the brand to how it's going to look and how it's going to feel and how it's going to taste. And it's very design centric. When he looks at people, it's, what are they going to wear? Tell me about what that's going to be. You know, the visual is incredibly um, important to him. And it's his, it's his kind of center point for how he thinks about any individual brand. It's why all his brands look so different. Um, You know, and I, I, I don't know how many people know this, but you know, Barry went to art school as a part of his education and, He's a painter, lo- thought he was going to be a painter. And then, uh, you know, his parents were like, oh, no, you don't. You're going to go back and you're going to learn business. Um, so he went to Brown and became who he is. But there's an artist in him always, and it's a visual artist. And, uh, you know, he's an avid reader. He's an amazing, he writes beautifully and all of that. But really, the visual arts are kind of who he is.
1: People talk about Barry as much as they talk about Ian Schrager as an influence. We could do a montage of that
0: we probably Probably shouldn't yeah but we were lucky enough to actually have him do a talk with us yes he he did um he's become a good friend of ours especially after he was our guest editor in 2018 which was such a trip to be able to produce an entire issue um working closely with him and getting to pick his brain on who should be in that issue his connections are incredible yeah As soon as we sent an email saying Ian Schrager would like you to be part of our issue, we got a response back immediately. I I wish we could do that for every issue. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it was amazing, too. I remember um, it was right before July 4th and I emailed him and I said, you know, please, 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 one last time, I'm going to ask you to be our guest editor. And he just replied back, yes. And I like squealed and no one was in the office (laughs) because it was right before July 4th and everyone was on vacation or leaving for vacation as I probably should have been. Um, so, but anyway, it was, I'm just so glad that he did that with us. It was such a memorable experience for me. Um, and as a follow up, he joined me in conversation at one of our events, Elevate, in 2019, which we recorded. There were many pieces of wisdom, but how important the details are has stayed with me since that conversation.
13: You know, we were the first ones that went to Lalabo, the first one. This is before they were bought by I think uh, Saint Laurent, uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, you know I think uh, you know the rule is uh, you assault as many senses as you can, touch, feel, taste, all of them, and uh, you know having a, a distinctive um, you know scent in the air I think is important. Uh, I think the first one uh, I'm not sure where we did it first, but. Um, it's just an important, it's just part of the whole package. Uh, I, I think it's, it's uh, it, it's a very kind of important. And uh, now the Labo has become a huge success. They're very uh, expensive now. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we do our own stuff uh, uh, now. But I think it's very important. You know, anything that can touch a person emotionally, anything, anything that, they will take note of, it's important to have that because you never know which detail is going to be the detail that pushes it over the top. So therefore, all the details are are important.
1: So the title of the podcast we decided on was What I've Learned. You've done 100 episodes. We've been doing this for four years. Do you have a favorite lesson learned that sticks
0: out to you from all of our guests? It's tough. There are a couple that resonate with me. To start, um, one is what Bill Walsh of Viceroy Hotels offered. Um, his commitment to always being and doing the best, especially for his team, is like no one's I've ever heard. We always end the podcast with the title of the podcast. So what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way?
12: Consistent individuality not only from a design point of view, not only from an operations point of view, um, but in a human to human point of view. um, Let's consistently commit to express our individuality to do so honestly and with authenticity. And if we all together make that commitment, there isn't a circumstance that will ever beat us.
0: And then we also had the chance to talk to the legendary Nushka Hempel. She's impressive in her own right and is an inspiration for many, but I loved how succinct and simple her take was on that question. So what we always end this pod
1: on uh, the, the name of the podcast. Uh, so what has been your greatest
7: lesson learned? My greatest lesson learned is I've still got so many lessons to learn.
0: And then, of course, Larry Traxler of Hilton Hotels is one of a kind, passionate, beyond intelligent. And somehow he manages and knows details about the thousands of projects he and his team are working on. He has such a deep respect and appreciation for design, hospitality and the people he works with. And we always end the pod with the title of the podcast. So what has been your greatest lesson or lessons learned?
14: Hmm. I, yeah, I, I would say my greatest, and you've, you've heard this come out in a few different um, stories uh, along, along this journey. I would say that it's, it's better to be lucky than good. Um. I would say that, you know, whichever of those categories that you happen to land in, um, you have to show up fully committed, um, ready to put in the hours, work hard, be kind, um, be passionate about everything that you do. And um, if you invest everything that you have, um, opportunities actually um, land in your lap. I I think that I'm a huge believer in that. I, I don't think that I had any idea that my journey was going to take me from Chicago to Singapore to, to New York, to LA, to, you know, uh, all the places in between. Um, but I, I, I threw everything that I had into, uh, every step along the way. Um, and there's no, you know, there's no, there's no other choice, right? You can't fail. So just keep, uh, keep focused on the positive, keep moving ahead. And there's always going to be adversity, right? Never, never let, um, you know, challenges stop you from uh, what you want to do. Keep, uh, keep your eye on the future.
0: And to end on a note that's sort of full circle and epitomizes why I love this industry is when Amar Lavani spoke about how it's the people that make the business. All right. And then we always end the podcast with the title of the podcast. So what has been your greatest, greatest lesson or lessons learned along the way?
3: Um, it's, 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 it's probably said over and over and over again, but it is this business and every business. but This business in particular is 1000% about the people. And if you can get the best team, you get the best product.
1: Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite part these past four years. After every conversation you've had, the one constant is how important the people are, whether it's employees or guests or
0: anyone the hotel touches. Yep. For sure. And now as we're Coming out of COVID, excited to see what the future holds. This industry is resilient. We've been through a lot, and I think have come out stronger on the other end. And there are so many more conversations to have and lessons to learn. Do
1: you think we have a hundred more
0: episodes left in us? Absolutely. Very <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very. Can us. you hear me? <laughs> yeah, my cell is. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Hospitality Design's What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.